0: We're turning back to the Word of God as we have read it, and we read it in Luke 14, Luke chapter 14, and where we're going to speak from is the final line that we have in verse 22, and I've called it the yet of invitation, and I've done that because it gives me a little bit of leeway, you see, that if I think there could be another few yets in Scripture that I could focus on and uh, preach on, uh, then that'll be the, the starting point. Or I'm sure there are yets that we can apply to those who were converted. And after our current series in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, who can tell where the Lord will lead us to go but the yet of invitation tonight. And the final line of Luke 14, the verse 22, and we'll read all the short verse, And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And yet, there is room. With the Word of God open before us, let's bow together, please, in a further word of prayer. Gracious and merciful Father, we thank Thee. In fact, we delight to be found in Thy presence tonight. We thank Thee for the blessings that we enjoy, We praise Thee, Lord, that in the midst of all of the batterings and the buffetings that life can and does serve up, that there is an oasis in the desert of this world, and we can retire to that, and we can find rest, and we can find reprieve, and we can find refreshment in the middle of that oasis. And so we thank Thee. We thank Thee, Lord, for joys along the way. We thank Thee for helps that keep us going. We thank Thee, Lord, for that which keeps us on track, and that does not allow us to lose focus when it would be so easy To lose focus. So easy to look around, to be dismayed, to give up, to feel there is no point. But Lord, we thank Thee for the encouragement of Thy Word. We thank Thee for the blessedness and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. We confess tonight that we need Him in all of our circumstances. We need Him every day that we live. We need Thee, and we need the power of Thy Blessed Spirit to work upon our heart. In convicting grace, in rectifying mercy, uh, coming and sorting out that which is wrong and putting it right. And Lord, if we are in a position tonight where we're not saved and we need salvation, then we know we've come to the right place. We've come to a place where the gospel will be proclaimed, the good news of the gift of God. We thank the Lord for the hymn with which we began tonight, our service proper, blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste that is of glory divine. And so we pray for those that don't know the Lord, that haven't got this blessed assurance, that cannot say, well, I know Christ in a personal and in an an individual way. I don't know him in terms of his mercy having gripped my mind, his love having taken over my heart, his joy having filled my soul, the assurance of his pardon of my sin having been granted. We think of the psalmist who was overjoyed to think, with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, who in the same psalm was telling us, but there is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. And so we come before thee, and we find thee, that if thy Lord shouldest mark iniquities, who shall stand but there is forgiveness with thee. And may we know that forgiveness in our hearts and lives tonight. Put thy hand upon those who are ill. We know there are very many of them. And so we ask for thy healing touch. We pray for thine abiding mercy. We ask for the comfort of thy presence. We pray that when people are surrounded by four walls in their own house and the whole situation is rather dismal, Lord, draw near and go with them, we pray and be of real value and comfort unto sighing spirits and unto broken hearts. Answer prayer, speak to us now through the Word. May we be sobered, listening to Thy truth. May we even pray right now, Lord, speak to me tonight. May there be a message here for me this evening from Thine own blessed and eternal book. We pray for our good, but we pray especially for Jesus' glory. Amen. No Room for the Savior. That's the title of a famous hymn that was written by Hilda Day. And in many ways, what she has written in the hymn, and even the opening line of it, is a most apt and yet aching and abysmal summary of the attitudes that we find all around us in society today. People look at Hear about the person, the work of the man Christ Jesus, God's only begotten, his well beloved Son, and they think there's not a place that I can have this God man in my life. No room for the Savior. Now, when he went about this earth for 30 odd years, some 20 centuries ago, the reaction was pretty much the same back then. Despite the facts, the Bible records that he went about doing good. And he healed all that were oppressed of the devil, despite the fact that he was anointed by God the Holy Spirit, that he worked powerful signs and wonders among the people, that he went out there onto those slopes of Galilee around the lake, and he fed thousands of people on more than one occasion. He dispensed mercy and grace and showed loving kindness and long-suffering. He gave out all manner of heavenly blessings to those who were in need. Despite all of that, the reaction of the overwhelming majority of people around him amounted to nothing better than what we see today. An indifferent shrug of the shoulders. What is that to me? A curt dismissal of the message. Sorry, no interest to me. Or maybe an open, outrageous revolt, because that happened when people rose up against him, threatened all kinds of violence against his person, and when even ugly scenes developed around the ministry of our Lord and Savior. And people were doing it in a most grotesque way, and they were trying to make it abundantly plain that as for us, we want absolutely nothing to do with this Jesus of Nazareth. So, from the commencement of his earthly life, this is how it was. Think of his birth. Well, let me take you to 1960 to a birth in the royal household. And the Queen Elizabeth's third child was born then. And I'm told 128 cables were sent out to all parts of the world. It'll be a lot more now, of course. Lights in Buckingham Palace went on, in the home offices, in the foreign office, the colonial office, the Commonwealth Relations office. And those lights went on. They burned all night. And the palace's large switchboard was manned all night. And those personnel on night duty, they were doubled in number, And all that for the birth of one royal child in Buckingham Palace. But how very different was the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from the arresting singing of a number of angels to a few humble shepherds on those Judean hills, apart from later the presence of a unique star that was hung in the sky, there was no regal pomp. there was no extended ceremony, there was no extraordinary splendor then. In fact, The physician, the doctor, Luke, he conducts us to the open doorway of a drafty and rough and foul-smelling and animal-polluted stall at the back of some run-down place in lowly Bethlehem, and there among the beasts, led out on sloping pieces of hard wood, our Savior rests. Luke 2 in the verse 7 records the details. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and led him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Poverty, deprivation, indignity for God's son, all of that was pushed his way. And that was only the beginning. A little taster of all that was to follow. This brand of treatment, bald and blunt though it was, continued through his experience here upon this earth. And what took place that day? When, in the most dingy maternity ward in history, or at least one of the most dingy, that was merely setting the tone for what was to be unswervingly followed in the total duration of his earthly life here upon this earth. You'll remember reading in Matthew 8 and verse 20, for example, our Savior saying, The foxes of holes and the birds of the air, they of nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He had no home. He had no permanent place of residence. The cold, bleak mountains were his only bed, his only loyal companions, and even they, blew hot, and cold, but a rough bunch of fishermen and former Republicans and peasants... Many of his own kith and kin, most of his compatriots, his fellow countrymen, they refused, they rejected, they ridiculed him. Some even went so far as to try to ruin him. You'll remember when he came to Nazareth, Look for details that particular occasion, and he comes and he opens up the Bible in the synagogue. He reads Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and they couldn't wait to get them chased out of their city. And that was so ironic. Nazareth was the place where you put the undesirables of the nation. The castoffs, you put them all in Nazareth. And these castoffs, despised by all the other Jews, were those who were hurrying Christ out of their presence cast out by the cast castoffs. It's amazing. It's astounding. And as time progressed, there wasn't any room for Christ in the entire country. His disciples are telling him as he marches on Jerusalem, Lord, don't be going there because we've heard the news. They're talking about killing you. Don't be going there. But he set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. When he gets there, he finds a murderer and a robber is chosen to be spared from a humiliating and a just death in preference to him. And within a few hours, the people are surrounding him, screaming en masse at the tops of their voices for the full rigor of a twisted law to be applied to him. And they're demanding in a frenzied fashion that this man's blood should flow. The Redeemer fallen man. He's now agonizing on Calvary's hill. He's hearing the abuse of a vile world. He's bearing the load of guilty men. There was plainly and painfully no room for the Savior. ever listen to this, wonder of all wonders, mystery of all mysteries, in spite of of the hounding, the hunting, the harassing, in spite of the criticism and the condemnation and even the crucifixion of the Son of God, and despite the fact that if Christ were to come back here today… In a similar fashion to what he did the first time around, he would be treated in the same way. For even to this moment, it's true largely of mankind that there is room for pleasure, oh yes, room for business. But for Christ the crucified, not a place that he can enter in the heart for which he died. But in spite of that, my message to you tonight is this. Though there are still many, many people who have no room for Christ in their hearts and lives, yet there is plenty of room for those sinners, those same rejecting sinners, in the heart and in the love of Christ. And so I say to any in the meeting and those tuned in over the internet, I want to give you an earnest, tender, I hope persuasive, strong invitation for you to come quickly to Jesus Christ. Because in the words of my text, in Luke 14, verse 22, yet there is room, yet there is room What a word! A word of assurance, a word of acceptance, a word of indescribable joy, a word of undeniable warmth and brilliant truth. What can equal this? The yet of invitation. Yet, there is room. Praise God for that. We're going to examine the words by taking a short series of questions— And a series of short questions it will be as well. And the first one is, all about the location. Where is there room? Where is there room? Yet there is room, that's what we're told here, but where is it? And we're talking about Christ here, His welcome, His forgiveness. Where is there room? There is room on the Mount of Forgiveness. There is room at Calvary. I love those beautiful words written by Ara Stantel, the cross upon which Jesus died. It's a shelter in which we can hide, and its grace so free is sufficient for me, and deep is this fountain, as wide as the sea, there's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. And from this time... When the fountain was opened at Calvary for sin and for uncleanness from that time to now, there have been vast, overwhelming multitudes that have come this way. They have come by the way of the cross. Their sin is as black as the blackest night, so black it would make a mark and a piece of coal. And yet they've come away, and they've been washed in the Savior's blood, and spiritually now infinitely whiter than snow. They've been cleansed from their corruption for looking to Christ. He who was emptied the cup of suffering and the cup of shame to its last dregs, He who hangs on that tree at Calvary as the sin-bearer, as the law-fulfiller, as the curse-remover. He who by his death and life has brought in an everlasting righteousness and peace as well through the gospel. Those people who have come to him, what have they known? They've known a thrilling sense of being cleansed from their pollution. They've known what it is to be broken free from condemnation. They've known what it is to be delivered from a Christless, fearful, fiery hell. Because they have found Jesus is all willing to welcome. He is almighty to save. He is all gracious to forgive, and He stretches out His arms of grace to embrace those poor, trodden sinners who come to Him, and that could be you. And let me add this. Innumerable offenses, and I'm not exaggerating here or stretching this out, innumerable offenses have been washed away by this fountain that flows from Mount Golgotha, and this fountain of Christ's blood has not diminished in its power or devalued in its virtue. It never will. The old gospel that our grandparents talked about is out of date, they tell us. We need a message for the twentieth century. And now we're in the 21st. But that was a word of a popular preacher back in the 20th century. They spoke to a West End congregation in Glasgow in his so-called sermon on a Sunday evening. And a man who had gone in there that night to that meeting with a burdened heart, seeking salvation, came away disappointed and dejected. We need a message, he had heard, for the 20th century. And there was nothing for him in what was an up-to-date, polished, but gospel-less sermon. Nothing to meet his awakened need. And on the way home, he passed a group of Christian young men who were holding an open-air meeting in Glasgow. And he paused. And he heard them sing, Dear dying Lamb, Thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. And he said, that'll do. That's not out of date. And he received the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ and he proved there was power from God to the salvation of his soul. And that's a message. We want to present this evening because there is no other. No other that can and ever will do helpless sinners good. This is the message of this word. It's the same red word. That's how Thomas DeWitt Talmage described it. It's the same red word that we read, for example, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 and 9. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I'm saying tonight there is room for you where on the mount of forgiveness. And may you get to Calvary. That's my prayer. Yet there is room. And more than that there is room among the members of the family. After the Battle of Austerlitz, Napoleon immediately adopted all the children and the soldiers who had fallen during the battle. They were supported, those children. They were educated by the state. And since they belong now to the family of the emperor, they were permitted to attach the name of Napoleon to their own. And that's how it is with Jesus Christ. We who once were sinners who in the words of Ephesians 2, in the verse 2 and 3, were children of disobedience, were by nature the children of wrath. In believing on Christ, we've been accepted by him. We've been adopted into his family. John 1 and 12 puts it like this, to as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God brought into the family, even to them that believe on His name. But sure, I was born a child of God. No, no one was. We were born, as we've just expressed it in Scripture in Ephesians 2, we were born children of wrath. We were born serving the devil. We were born loving sin. There needs to be a change. A whole turn around, if ever we are to be members of this family of God. Yeti Buell had it right when she said, I once was an outcast stranger on earth, a sinner by choice, an alien by birth. But I've been adopted, my name's written down, an heir to a mansion, a robe and a crown, with Jesus my Savior, I'm a child of the King. And the good news is there's still room for you to be a member of this family. Yet there is room. Where is the room? On the Mount of Forgiveness and Calvary, among the members of the family, in the mansions of the Father. Yet there is room. A long procession has been screaming from earth through the gates of splendor right up into heaven. Way back from the first hour when the first candidate for future glory, Abel, entered in. And as I'm speaking to you, no doubt there's another, right now as we speak. Another emancipated soul just released from this old body of sin and death. Just escaped out of its mortal tent, just freed from its corruptible cage, and even now that soul is winding its way home to heaven, taking the first awesome, wonderful, glorious gazes and steps inside the everlasting city that lies four square. What a tremendous moment for those souls! Lost in contemplation, love, and praise coronation day for them. And they're listening. And they're hearing songs on the way in. And they hear this one, thou wert worthy. Thou wert worthy for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. That's how they've all got them out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Because He is there. Christ is there. Others are on the way. And there is still, listen, still room for many more. Still room for you. There are crowns in heaven without heads to wear them right now. Harps without hands to play. The mansions without tenants to occupy them. Streets of gold that will always have something lacking until you have trodden upon them as one of the Lord's own people. There is room there. but you must be suitably prepared. A scoffing infidel, Bible denier, but a very able character. He was in the company of a person who wasn't terribly well educated, but a very holy person, lived close to the Lord, and the intelligent infidel thought, I'm going to have fun here. And he put a question To that man, and he said, I understand, sir, that you expect to go to heaven when you die. Can you tell me what sort of a place heaven is? Yes, sir, replied the Christian. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. And if your soul isn't prepared, prepared for it, then with all of your boasted wisdom, you will never enter there. Will you enter? Will you be there? None but those who were washed, justified, sanctified by the power of the Spirit of God can. Is this you? And I'm pleading with you that you would step forward longing for grace, crying out for mercy, saying, Lord, I hear, yet there is room. Let me occupy some of that room on the Mount of Forgiveness, among the members of the family, in the mansions of the Father, yet there is room. Is a room for me. Then in the second place, We thought the location, where is there room, the reason. Why is there room? Why is there room? And the first answer is because of God's purpose. You may or may not have read the words of Romans 8. Paul writing there in verse 28 through to 30. He says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who were the called according to His purpose. What was that purpose? For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate and whom he predestinated, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, there is such a depth of material there, it's quite incredible, but we have a linked chain, and one link must go with the other. God, from before the foundation of the world, before the construction of these planets all around us, He chose out a people for Himself who would serve Him by grace. He would save them in His love. They would afterwards live to His glory. He chose them. Now, some misguided people look at the book and they say, Well, I don't see that in it. It's too narrow as well. It's too restrictive. I don't like the sound of it. Like it or not, it is in the book. And the lines of God's choice are not narrow. We're not talking about a handful of people. A few here, a few there, and no more. Just a blessed, privileged few in every generation. Bless God, they're not. And this book teaches us that when that moment arrives for the great king to make up his jewels, it'll be found that that royal casket of his contains such multitudes of jewels that they'll stretch far beyond the attempts of any human being to calculate or put a number or even an estimate on that number. God has chosen a Huge host of people who will glorify and magnify his name and I say to you I encourage you, I exhort you yet there is room there is room because of God's payment many years ago the emperor of China sent Wu Feng trusted representative at the time to rule over people in the Mountainous area of Formosa, Taiwan. Wu Feng proved to be a strict ruler. He punished every indiscretion when the tribesmen did wrong, but he was fair and he was just, and so the people learned to love him, respected him very highly because of his kindness to them, and soon he ruled with a considerable degree of order upon them. But there was one wicked custom, and try as he might, he couldn't get rid of this wicked custom. Once a year, they would gather, swoop down from the mountains cut off the head of the first person they found, and then they offered the head of the dead man as a sacrifice to their gods. And Wu Fang was remonstrating with them, and he said, you shouldn't kill people. I got a sinful, it's senseless, but he wouldn't listen to him. And then he pleaded with them, and he threatened these head-hunting persons, stop these wicked expeditions. One day he received a letter from the emperor of China, that in part said, unless this head hunting stops, you will be brought back to China in disgrace. And at that time the seventy-one year old Wu Feng sadly called the chiefs together, discussed the plan with them. Honourable chiefs, he began, and he outlined the plan, that the next night this practice will stop with its final victim tomorrow night when the moon is high. Your tribesmen, he said, will take the last tent. They'll surround the crossroads near the village. They'll see a man dressed in white walking towards that crossroads. He will be your last victim. You may behead him, but after that, the custom has to stop. And the chiefs agreed. And at they are appointed. The person robed in white came along, and amid screaming and shouting and carnage, they charge as if they're in battle. There's the flash of moonlight on the steel as one of the chiefs raised his axe, and he cut off the head of the one lone stranger. And then quickly they left the place of the murder, and they took that gory prize of theirs to a place in the bush where a feast was going to be had. Here's the head, shouted one of the tribe's men, and he handed it to the, the big chief so that He could carry it to be inspected in the light of the fire, but all at once, the singing and the shouting, it stopped. There was a great hush, all eyes turned on that dead face, and every man was shocked at what he saw because the victim was their good and kind friend, Wu Feng. Our blessed Lord Jesus led down his life voluntarily, virtuously, There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin, only him vicariously. He did it in my place. He did it for me so that I wouldn't go there, that we might forsake our sins, repent of our degrading iniquities, and receive him as Savior and Lord. Sweeney, the hymn writer, put it like this. They pierced both his hands and his feet. His hands and his feet he resigned. The pangs of his body were great, but greater the pangs of his mind that wrath would have kindled a hell of never abating despair in millions of creatures which fell on Jesus and spent itself there. And because of him taking my place, there is room This almighty sacrifice, the Son of God, loved me and gave himself for me. God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Bring you, reel you in, draw you by the cords of his love and of his mercy. Will you be one of that number? Yet there is room. We've asked two questions and answered them. Location, where? Reason, why? Third and final question, the season, when? When is there room? Have you heard people say you know, I'm interested in salvation. I know I need to be saved. I do have a sense of need. I appreciate the truth of the gospel. I'm not kicking back against this and saying it's not true. I agree with what you're saying, but tomorrow, that's when I lacked. If I'm coming to Christ, if I'm going to leave my sin, if I'm going to receive a new heart, if I'm going to be filled with the fragrance of heaven and be bound for that holy place… Well, not just now. But the Bible, in answering the question, when is a room? The only answer it ever gives is, yes, it is now. The only permissible answer that I can give you is now. I read in 2 Corinthians 6 the verse 2, I have heard thee, God speaking, in a time accepted, and in a day of salvation have I succored thee, behold... Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Other people will say, but you don't realize the things I have to sort out, the sin that I've committed, it stops me. It's a big barrier in the way. You can't understand that. Well, I agree that your sin is great, as is mine. We never needed anybody to come and teach us how to transgress against God and against our fellow men. That came naturally, and we have careered on in our sin, and maybe we've thought they've been minor sins, white sins, all this kind of thing, but they've been added to iniquity to iniquity to iniquity. Today finds us still adding sin to sin, and we're at a further distance from God than ever we were, and we have sinned to such a level that we never imagined we could ever reach or ever would amass, and there are people about us, and you know who they are, and you may feel that you're one of them. Early on, the indications were pretty good, but then you went astray just a little, then a bit further, still further, from bad to worse, and going into some of the most wicked sins, and you wouldn't have believed that you would stoop so low, fall so far, and yet you had, you say, you had good intentions. But I'm telling you, in spite of all of those multiplied offenses… No matter what size of your sin is, how mountainous it appears in your eyes, yet there is room at the cross. Room in the family of God. Room in heaven. You can be cleansed. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there can you, though vile as he, wash all your sins away. Hallelujah. Yet there is room. In spite of offenses that have been multiplied, in spite of opportunities that have been missed. Think of the times, just basically when you've sat in a gospel meeting, when you've received a gospel tract, when you've read your Bible on your own, when you've even tried to pray. Times where the Spirit of God, you know, has stirred your heart to run after Christ. Maybe a voice at home, or a voice at work, or a voice apparently just came out of the blue completely and it stirred your soul and it arrested you and it's reached into your conscience and probed and pricked that conscience of yours. Only the Lord knows how many times that has happened in your life. Only the Lord knows how many impressions have been left by sermons that you have heard. But what a miracle of grace this is in itself, that God should be so patient and long-suffering to us. And still tonight, be speaking to our hearts. While God has been patient with you, you're not gaining anything in terms of years. Time is fleeting. We have a clock outside, finally fixed. And on that clock are these words: "Time is short," and we are praying. People walking up and down Ravenhill Road will read that, and it will impact them. It's a serious comment. Time is short, and that word in Scripture, because it's a Bible phrase, to give the full force of the metaphor that's being used there, it's this: time is pressed together. Things are being compacted. Like an accordion that has been stretched out, but now it's closing. Constricting. And that's your life. No matter what part of life we're in, our time is closing. Like a prisoner in this feeble contracting, constricting cell where the walls were coming in. And you know, the tempter is Subtle. The devil will be telling you, time is short, is that what that preacher said? Don't you worry about that. You have plenty of time, and he will make sure you push this down into touch and keep playing for time, meantime, all the time he's filling the time that you have, taking your mind off. Think about this, think about that, something else, another thing that demands your attention, legitimate thing, but it takes your thoughts away, burns up the time, another day has passed and you're still not seeing time is short, the tempter is subtle. I must warn you in closing the torment is severe. My Savior said, three times over he repeats it. And he's using an expression. Sometime we'll have to get into the depth of what he's saying here because one thing I'm sure of, if our Lord paints hell with a word picture, what he's painting, the reality is always worse than the illustration. But he says there's a place which is hell where the worm dieth not. And the fire is not quenched. We have briefly described heaven tonight. And in that one line we're describing hell. There's much more to it. You don't want to go there. The tempter is determined you will. Time is moving by. Torment is severe, but here's the door of opportunity. Yet there is room. There's room tonight at the cross for you. And may God's Spirit lay hold of you and bring you into His loving embrace.